Welcome back for another episode of the Endless Spiral Podcast. You're all very welcome. As always, I am your host, Keith Russell. On this episode, I am joined by Barry Murphy of BodyWise. So today we're going to be talking about eating disorders. If you're a little unfamiliar about BodyWise, which I'm sure you know who they are, but if you're not, um, their mission is to ensure support, awareness, and understanding of eating disorders amongst the wider community, as well as advocating for the rights and healthcare needs of people affected by eating disorders. BodyWise was founded in 1995 and is a national voluntary organization supporting people affected by eating disorders. Now, that's my little speech out of the way. I'm going to bring Barry in. So, Barry, thanks very much for coming on today. I really appreciate you giving up your time for this topic. Absolutely, Keith. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Good, good. How are you anyway? You keeping well? Yeah, all good. Another week is nearly over. It's, it's unbelievable to her this far into the year, September. Yeah, and at this stage, I think every month just merges into the next. So I couldn't even, I, I'm surprised. Yeah, I couldn't even tell you what day it is. I think it's Thursday, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> right, Barry. Um. So as we said at the beginning, there you are from Bodywise. So just in case anyone is a little unfamiliar about yourself, do you want to just kind of give a little bit of a, an intro into maybe yourself and what you do and what Bodywise does and is? Yeah. So I'm I'm the research policy officer here. Only in the last couple of weeks, I was previously communications for over nine years. So we've a new person in communications now. And essentially, BodyWise was set up in 1995 as the National Voluntary Association for People Affected by Eating Disorders. So at the time, there were very little services really for people. And it was kind of a group of parents came together and established it. And so over the, the course of the, the past number of years, then we've expanded that to include things like online support groups. We've had an email service since 2005 and then our family program, which has been running since 2014. We also do things to like school talks, which we've been doing since 2009. We've worked a lot as well. I did in, in my previous role with kind of the social media companies because they all have an Irish presence or European headquarters in Dublin yeah. and some of the kind of harmful content that kind of comes up there. We've done a lot of webinar type stuff as well. This year, we did a piece on autism and eating disorders. There's another a three-part series, coach education series around athletics coaches and kind of the issues they may encounter amongst their athletes. So it's not just kind of core support we do, but we do a lot of other stuff as well. Yeah, wow. I mean, God, you have so much stuff there that I wasn't even aware of. Um, that's absolutely fantastic. I just wanted to pick up on just something you said about the school talks there. Um, are they secondary schools or primary schools or are they mixed schools? Or Yeah, it's it's very much secondary, but there, there are primary school lesson plans in the pipeline. So last October, October 2020, we launched a specific body image website around kind of that whole issue. And it's it's not just eating disorders we talk about in schools, yeah. but it can be body image as well. And sometimes it comes from there's a concern in the school that the staff have picked up on, or else it's just a teacher might have an interest in the issue as a whole. So mm. it's very, we're very measured in, in how we approach that whole issue because you have to take it Quite, quite good care and how you talk to young people around the issue and do it sensitively and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I think language is very important. Um, yes, you mentioned body image there, which is kind of 
where I am at the moment. So I'm not, I don't know if you've read or seen any of my stuff, but I'm being quite open at the moment and I've been doing the rounds a bit with interviews and stuff about uh, eating disorders for men, but for body dysmorphia as well. Um, Because they're the two main things that I've suffered from and still do suffer. But now I know body dysmorphia is technically classed as a mental health condition, but it is obviously, as you know, more than me, is closely linked to eating disorders. Do you find or have you found that there's much talk about eating or about body dysmorphia? Because when I mention it, a lot of people don't know too much about it. And I had like I've only been able to put a label on that in the last while. Before six months ago, I'd never even heard of it. And although I now know I've been suffering for, for 20 years. Um, do you, is there much talk about body dysmorphia? We certainly do get questions from it about it, I should say, including from journalists and the media. And I think to be strictly correct, it is more of an anxiety issue. That's where it fits in diagnostically. Okay. In terms of how it sits in the diagnostic manual, that kind of thing. And but we know there's a very strong link there with OCD and the, the compulsive component and that applies to both body dysmorphia and eating disorders and we know as well about 12 to 15 percent of people who would be patients for plastic surgery or kind of dermatology procedures would potentially fit the kind of diagnosis of body dysmorphia. Yeah so do you offer do you offer any services for body dysmorphia? Or is it mainly just eating disorders? I mean, what I mean by that is like, if someone said, you know, they came to you with body dysmorphia, would it be more of more therapy, more, as you said, like OCDs would be more kind of, be more therapy really, would it? Yeah, I think it's a mix. I think, again, there's things like CBT would be up there very much as well for body dysmorphia. And I know there's a group as well that's called OCD Ireland who provides mm. support based around that because there's something else as, as well there's another condition where people kind of tend to pull out their hair yeah um, yes another kind of anxiety piece as well yeah yeah okay okay um do you, is there what would the percentage be for men and women that would come to yourselves would you find it's more women or would it be 50 50 or it's hard to put, I suppose, an exact mm. number on it. And let's start with the the kind of the old statistic you would hear from men in eating disorders more generally would have been one in 10. And we know that figure is kind of out of date, really. It doesn't really fit with what people are seeing on, on the front line. And the more correct figure is potentially one in four. And men... Yeah. And eating disorders have been very much kind of overlooked over time. So it, their, their issues have been under-researched, under-treated, under-diagnosed, under-recognized. We know less than 1% of all research around body image issues and eating disorders has actually focused on men. So we have a huge kind of deficit of knowledge around men and eating disorders. So we're a long way short of, of where we need to be. Yeah. And I think in, in fairness, that is changing quite a lot. When I started working in the, in the area, you kind of were aware there was a bit of a recognition and a conversation, but we have to really, I think tipper hats, there's people like Scott, Scott Griffiths in Australia, the Stuart Murray, Jason Nagata, Kyle Ganson, all in the United States or North America, they've all really kind of taken this issue and said, 
look, there needs to be a lot more done here. There are no medical guidelines based around men's needs. A lot of the, the clinical tools, the assessment tools have been based around female presentations. I was at a webinar just there in July with a man with personal experience in the UK. He talked about being given, given pink leaflets with information about periods. So, you know, that's kind of a little bit where things are at that can sound quite stark and quite bleak. And I don't think it's necessarily about blaming the system as such. It's just that things haven't fully adapted to meet all of the different presentations of eating disorders because just there's a big yeah. historic gap there. And another gap that actually comes up, well, two really. So firstly, we know 200,000 studies have been published on depression, only about 15,000 on eating disorders. So that's a massive information gap that of course affects the whole wow. field. Yeah. It's the front line and our knowledge base. And then the other, the other piece is the funding for research just far falls far, far short compared to issues like schizophrenia, autism and Alzheimer's. So unfortunately, that's kind of quite a negative picture of what I've just said around where we're at. But look, I think definitely those voices I've mentioned, people like yourself, there's a couple of men I know in the UK are quite active as well, are posting things. And now I've just seen over the last while, there's one of the diagnostic kind of tools, they, they kind of check for muscularity. And that's kind of a bit more born with, with men in mind. So. Yeah. I think the long-term picture is we will see better tools to recognize the issues that men are experiencing and they won't kind of be kind of put into a, a female box and even actually thinking back to the diagnostic criteria mm. one of them was you the lack of menses lack of menstruation and that's obviously something men who identify as male Mm. can't experience so that was taken out of the criteria in 2013 i think partly as a recognition that you know men can still get an eating disorder even though they don't obviously experience periods and that kind of thing yeah yeah well oh my god i i was not aware of all that because a lot of people do ask me and obviously i'm not qualified to answer a question like that you obviously are and like, as you said, bleak, I don't want to use the word bleak again, but that's actually, we're way behind, a lot further behind than I thought. Um, would funding be, as you said a minute ago, like, would, that, would that be a big, a big kind of stumbling block or is there more to it than that? And what I mean by that is like for research and stuff. I think definitely. I mean, when you hear that, that gap, it's just, there's just no comparison. In, now it's international research, so it's in dollars. Mm. And of course, you know it affects what gets published and then how, how much of it hits the front line that kind of thing yeah oh so, yeah i don't know what the primary reason is for the funding yeah gap as such yeah yeah okay okay right let's um okay let's let's move on from that one so um stigma we're slightly moving on stigma is a big thing that i have found especially for men and i mean we're not just here to talk about men obviously it's women as well but I've certainly found stigma in men, especially anyone who's contacted me through my social media and through my website from the interviews that I've done and stuff is that that's the one main thing that people say to me is that the stigma. And that's why most men that I have spoken to or have reached out to me want to remain anonymous is because of the stigma. Do you find that when people might come to yourselves or just in general, maybe women as well, or probably more men? 
Absolutely, yeah. And I think not just men, but certainly adults, regardless of gender as well. There's, oh, okay. there's a piece there around the whole disclosure thing and just opening up. And I think for men with an eating disorder, there is an extra, an extra bit of a hurdle there around just opening up and sharing and kind of, well, firstly, also recognizing sometimes that they have an issue that can be a challenge first, yes. a, kind of a slow burn piece. And yeah, it, it's really tricky because, and I, I've noticed this really during COVID as well, mm. around one of the issues faced by people with eating disorders is they're constantly aware of other people's perception of the illness. And a lot of that sometimes, unfortunately, is because the other people, whether it's family, wider family or friends, have the perception that the food and weight are the primary issues. So if there's any yeah. change in the person, then the person is kind of having that feedback and receiving it, but also trying to get a sense of what are other people might be thinking about them. And look, for anyone putting their hand up and saying they're struggling with this is very, very hard. And even the first GP appointment can be very hard. And just developing that wider kind of support network and so my colleague Harris would often talk about this idea of men having a double stigma. So the stigma of having an eating disorder, but then on top of that, you have the stigma of being a man with an eating disorder, because I think there's been so much just outside in the general public where people mightn't have much knowledge, might only have a superficial understanding of the issue and kind of the sense of it being a female issue or a female illness. And Sometimes it affects families as well. Like we've done our, when we've done our family program, there was one time we did it and the gender split was 50-50. So half of the parents who were coming were supporting a son and the other half were supporting a daughter. And it kind of just wow. took a while, I think, for them for it to sink in with them. Yeah, and yeah. boys can be ex experiencing an eating disorder too. Yeah, because, I mean, like for me, I used to like a lot. I used to always hear, "I just not a pick on you," and I'd be like, "Yeah, but it's you know, like you don't see that in yourself." So for me, it would always be where the body dysmorphia would come in as well. I don't like. I mean, there was lots of different things I didn't like about myself, but for the eating disorder, where part of it would be the spare tire around my waist, and you'd always hear, "There's not a pick on you." I mean, I always knew I had an issue with it, but I I never spoke about it for twenty odd years. Okay, I've only put a label on it recently, but that doesn't mean I didn't know I had a problem. You know, and as you said, it was the stigma with it as well. Being a man and, you know, even just saying, like even the words eating disorder, for me anyway, I don't know about you, but like I when I first came out to start talking about this recently, I was contacted by someone quite close to me. You don't have an eating disorder. You never did. You know, so I suppose you can hide it quite well. But even that, I'm kind of like, you know, when your people close to you are telling you you don't, you know, just the words eating disorders, I think, usually resonate. Maybe not resonates the wrong word, but they're more kind of, it's more of a female term, I think. Um, that's just my opinion anyway. You know, like for a man to say an eating disorder, I think a lot of people probably just think it's either, you know, anorexia or bulimia. But obviously, and that's another question I wanted to talk about, the different types of eating disorders. So for me, it was binge eating disorder. Um, how many different types of eating disorders are there? 
think most people would have a general kind of sense of familiarity with anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa and then binge eating disorder was only formally recognized in 2013 again back when the, the diagnostic criteria changed and then there's also OSFED so OSFED is other other specified feeding or eating disorder and that's a little bit where kind of people experience symptoms from more than one so they don't quite meet the criteria for one specific one but their symptoms might overlap between others and that was kind of a that's a, a new name again from 2013 of what was what was previously called EDNOS. So EDNOS would have been eating disorder not otherwise specified again as a kind of a, a mixed uh, piece of symptoms. And then finally, there's also ARFID, which is a little bit tricky to explain. And I would say there's kind of low public recognition there. So that's avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And it's slightly different in its clinical presentation because it doesn't have that kind of body image piece to it or the compulsion, but there are significant risks to that around developmental growth and all that and a very limited food intake. And I always remember it kind of by a couple of different hallmarks. So it, the one piece can be like a lack of interest in food and the second piece can be a fear of a consequence of eating and that could be something like choking and then there can be a real sensory text texture side of things as well so anything across kind of sight smell mm. that kind of side of food so arford is a little bit different in that the, the body image piece isn't there and the drive for thinness isn't there but it, it's certainly you know, it's it's coming on the radar a lot more. I think in 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 recent years, and you know, there's, I know there's a new book actually coming out on it soon. So it's it's a growing okay. area, certainly. Yeah. Okay. So the main, I suppose, the the most popular three. I don't like to use the word popular. Would be the anorexia, bulimia, and I suppose the the binge eating one. Would they be? I suppose when people kind of come to yourselves, would they try, would be the main three that people would mention? It's a, it's a, like the question is sometimes what's the most common one and it's kind of hard right. to answer yeah. definitely in, in clinical practice I, I think the most common is anorexia but then in the general population it's, it's more likely to be binge eating so yeah it yeah it, it's gonna it varies and then in research it's actually osfed so it, it <laughs> just kind of know what set, no one said answer to which is the most common right okay fair enough okay so if a question that I get asked a lot, and again, I'm not qualified to answer this, so I always try and not steer away from it, but I'm always wary of answering it. But if, if someone felt they had a problem, what would be their first steps? So, again, I suppose maybe the, the answer might be different for men and women, would it, or would your answer be the same? I think it's the same, really, and it's it's really hard in a sense because as much as i can say send an email or contact a helpline or join line online support group i suppose we would find there has to be a kind of a, a sense from the person that things want to change for them yeah um, yeah I, i'm always very clear then if i'm speaking to the media or to journalists that around recovery and treatment that person has a voice in their own treatment so if they feel something isn't working they can put their hand up and say look i don't feel this is working can we try something else so that's really important as well and it's 
it's very hard to say, I suppose in it, well, in addiction, they, I think they tend to talk about rock bottom. Mm. And I don't know if we'd use that as much, but we do know sometimes things just get to quite a significant kind of crisis point and it can be for the person they realize they just man can't manage this anymore either in general but also on on their own and because of yeah. something then also called the eating disorder voice which it's not a hallucination type voice to be clear about that but it's kind of like the, the, there are two parts of the person's head. So there's kind of the rational side and the voice side and the voice will always kind of want the person to do more eating disorder things than allowing the person to get better and to get help. And I think it's just about that first con contact with the GP and because the term that comes up a lot, I suppose as well is the vicious cycle. Yeah. So it's trying to trying to break that first chain in the yeah. link yeah. of the eating disorder. And like it's very slow with recovery. And you're talking months and years potentially. You can't put a gun to someone's head and, and mm. make them recover. You can't foist recovery on someone. And as well, as it's not just all the physical stuff that needs to be addressed, but there are the underlying issues and sometimes Sometimes I've heard people being asked with their, about their experience and they've been through recovery and the question they're asked is, how's your relationship with food now? And sometimes the, the question get, that gets missed sometimes is, how's your relationship with yourself? Yes. Because it's, it's going to be that one that determines a lot of the other stuff that's going on. So, yeah. That's brilliant. That's exactly it. Because I suppose if you're not feeling right in yourself, look, I'm only speaking personally here. The binge eating would come into it. You know, you have the comfort eating or the emotional eating. And as you said about the vicious cycle, look, the name of my podcast is The Endless Barrel. It's just another way of phrasing that. That's where I got the name from because I'm exactly the same. I always felt I was in an endless barrel. So trust yeah. me, I can, I, I can relate to exactly what you're saying. Um, so if someone felt or if someone was ready to reach out, you mentioned the GP, say they weren't ready to go to a GP, say, look, look, a man leaves everything, you know, especially going to a doctor, would they just going to maybe go to your website and fill out a form or pick up the phone or? Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose if there is that fear of approaching a GP, maybe it can be useful as well just to write stuff down of yes. things you want to discuss. Now, I know obviously because of the times we're in, it might then face-to-face -face appointments. I'm not sure what the lay of the land is there at the moment or if all GP appointments are over the phone and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So they could probably, and the reason why I'm asking that is because, um, as we mentioned earlier on about men, and, and they, I know I keep going back to men all the time, but they a lot of the time they want to remain anonymous and, so they can like you can obviously remain anonymous at the beginning, just going onto your website and just contacting yourselves, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah, that, that, that's definitely advantage, I suppose, of of having that kind of confidentiality piece around services. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, we'll wrap this up fairly soon. I just had another question, just going back to what we were talking about a minute ago. If say if you recognise in yourself, there's something wrong. But what if you recognise in a family member? And as you said, obviously you can't put a gun to someone's 
head, but what would, say you, you, you're worrying about your child or your, or your parent or your brother or, sister or whoever, what would, what would their first steps be? It's very hard in those early days. And I suppose a lot of it then as well, how did you discover it? Did the person come to you or did you notice things over a period of time? And in those early days, I think what you have to try and do is just figure out a way of how you're going to approach it. And it's it's about not going in with a confrontation dynamic, not going in all the guns blazing, because that's a fairly quick route into resistance and denial and the person shutting down and all that kind of thing. So I would tend to say, you know, it's, it's, it's better to go into a situation with a bit of research and a bit of homework done and don't go in blind. So you want to read up on the issue first, just try and get a handle on what's going on for the person, particularly things like the eating disorder voice and why the behaviors might be happening. So we would tend to focus on anything sort of being a kind of a coping mechanism for a person. Yeah. And I think whatever stereotypes you've heard, or was it, you might've heard anecdotally, just say you have to throw them out the window and just try and focus on the person. And you want to try and find kind of a calm place where you can take a bit of time, where you're not going to be rushed, where things are maybe the atmosphere is a bit easy and, welcoming to speak to the person and you're trying not to focus too much on the behaviors around what the person is doing but okay. get a sense of how they're feeling and just exploring that conversation a little bit and mm. be mindful of your own expectations too i think at the outset keep your expectations kind of fairly modest okay yeah that one conversation isn't necessarily going to change things and just have kind of a kind of a rough plan in your head of the things you kind of want to say and probably some of this is just because you've noticed red, certain red flags uh, going on for the person and then it's just trying to ask them how things are going saying you've noticed things and you are a little bit worried and then it's because yeah. you want it to be a collaborative kind of conversation that yeah. maybe something will come out of it and even if the person says no at that at that first conversation around getting help or going to a gp you have actually just put out your hand and saying look there, there's a yeah kind of an olive, an olive branch here if, if you like yeah yeah what would a few of those red flags be barry yeah, so they'll cut across really different aspects of a person's life because an eating disorder affects them kind of behaviorally, physically, mentally, and emotionally. So for for young girls and women, there's obviously the loss of periods, that's potentially one. And I would say as well, trips to the bathroom kind of being a bit unusual or a bit kind of frequent for for reasons that don't seem Okay. related to kind of going to the bathroom if you if you like mm -hmm. um, there's also a big sense really that a person's personality has changed for in some ways respects or so marks change in personality okay i would say also there can be kind of a lot of black and white thinking in the person that their thinking patterns can become quite, quite rigid and fixed maybe things like over exercising as well packaging yeah. of food under the bed that kind of thing and i think the big thing with an eating disorder really in terms of kind of red flags is 
things have deteriorated. That's what the sense that has gone on. So something's gotten really difficult for the person and their life is kind of curtailed in some way. Mm. So it's not all about the food side of things, but it's kind of the after effects of that. And maybe as well, some the family meal situation that can become quite fraught and and stressful for people kind of all under one roof. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I tell you, yeah, that's very well said. Um, Right, maybe we'll wrap it up. Um, now, before we go, I just want to thank you again, Barry, for coming on because, uh, like I said, it's, it's a topic that's very personal to me. So I did have some questions I wanted to get out there and hopefully clarify some questions because I get so many questions sent to me and obviously I, I can't answer most of them. So I, I hope we've covered um, at least some of them in this um, podcast. Uh, Barry, obviously people can go to the website. So it's bodywise.ie, isn't it? Or is it .com? So I, I should know that. Dot .ie, yeah. Dot .ie and it's W-H-Y-S dot ie isn't it that's it yeah can i say just an extra piece about men when i come on to it after no no go ahead now yeah i suppose sometimes just i'm asked kind of why why is there this increase in men or what's going on with men and i've I've been thinking about this a lot lately and i don't think it's one thing really and i would say boys and men are the untold stories of eating disorders i think first and foremost kind of touching back to what I said earlier about their their needs being under-recognized. But I think what's happening is that there are different kind of cultural, social, and environmental factors all kind of running in parallel in the background and sometimes in the foreground. So we know we know from the Australian experience, for example, that in the past two decades plus that risky behaviors around food and weight haven't really increased amongst men. We know popular culture, there's a lot of pressure around muscularity. It's not difficult to find body ideal imagery in the media for men. I think we also need to get rid of the idea that boys and men aren't body conscious. They they clearly are. So, and for some men that's body dysmorphia, body dissatisfaction or an eating disorder. And there's definitely some of the researchers I mentioned earlier, there's something going on around protein and how that is marketed and available in food content and all of that kind of thing. And this kind of thing you should be paying attention to. And some people will pick up on that, unfortunately. So kind of all of those kind of social environmental forces kind of coming together heightened with other risk factors then i think that's why we're seeing some instances of men in eating disorders both in general and kind of on the rise so it, it's not really one thing that's kind of yeah. my sense of things yeah well, you mentioned the protein is that like you know the, the the tubs of protein are you talking about actual taking protein shakes or do you mean protein and food or i think it's a mixture of both yeah and i was at a Canadian webinar a few months ago and they really tipped into this so it's both the market share for what's called protein fortified food where it'll kind of directly see on the label of the bottle or whatever x percentage of protein yeah and I suppose another piece we we don't tend to see it much but I know again from the Australian experience is is the use of steroids unfortunately and again the Australian experience would point to the, the increase there but it's it's not that people are taking it for sports-based reasons most of them aren't they're taking it for the bulking up 
So yeah, it's more of a visual thing, isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And then we know the latest research from NUI and Galway is that more younger people are have been trying to take a diet now than say 18, 19 years ago. So it's kind of those four or five factors. I think yeah. they're all just kind of crashing into each other, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks very much Ray, for bringing those topics up at the end there because there are some topics that I forgot, I didn't I forgot to mention earlier on I forgot to ask you about so thanks very much for actually mentioning them at the end because they're very important and um, they're very it's very important to, to mention them as well I mean there's some things that you wouldn't even think about but the fact that you know you know the you've got say uh, what you like you know uh, on TV you've got Love Island and you know all these things on Instagram and all that type of stuff. So you mentioned that culture, culturally and stuff like that. So thanks very much for making those topics, you know, for bringing those topics up. I really do appreciate that because like I said, I get asked so many times, but like I said, it's great to, to have someone in, in your position who, you know, you're an expert in this. So thanks very much for bringing them up. I personally, I'm thanking you anyway. Um, so guys, obviously we mentioned the website. You can also get in touch with BodyWise or at least you can follow them on their social media channels and these are on everywhere aren't you facebook twitter and instagram and it's just body wise isn't it that's it yeah yeah brilliant okay i've got loads of stuff up on the website so if anyone's looking for any information tons of information up on their website honestly got it tons of it um is that it barry do you want to add anything else before we go yeah that's all i think brilliant right brilliant right guys we're gonna leave that there um well, again, thanks very much, Brian, for coming on the podcast today. That was very, very interesting, fascinating, actually. Um, we'll leave there, guys, and I'll be back again on another podcast very soon. So I'll see you all again very soon. Bye for now.